For someone who's gonna has just tuned into this episode, why should they stay and listen? I know the answer to how we can heal a lot of this stuff that's gone on in our childhood. Childhood then? How was your childhood? Oh, I feel like I just stepped into therapy. Yeah. What is emotion? There are a lot of emotion researchers that are still arguing about this. I would say that emotions are... Nathan Jones, founder of Mood Institute, emotion scientist and TEDx speaker. From voiceover artist to pioneering emotion researcher, Nathan's groundbreaking work has been spotlighted by the Sydney Morning Herald, The Daily Telegraph, Sky News Breakfast, ABC Radio and The Age. He has collaborated with renowned brands like SPS, Foxo and Paramount, championing his mission to enhance emotional intelligence. Tell us a bit more about shame. Shame is the master emotion. It's kind of like the emotion that really like is at the core of most of our troubled selves. And shame is the underlying emotion. I'm not worthy of being seen or heard or known or understood for the one I truly am. He says something at the start that really caught my attention. Giving the shame back. How'd you do that? If you can visualize the big plastic bag and it's full of like black sludgy slime. I think for some of us that bag was passed down generationally and no one wants to look at that stuff. The tip, the secret, the thing <laughs> that I've really stumbled upon is that the solution to a lot of our emotional healing is to become our own. I wanted to start this episode differently. This episode is one of the most honest, open, and vulnerable conversations you will hear on any podcast ever. Nathan, firsthand, has gone through the healing process from his childhood experiences, and his insight as an emotions researcher has allowed him to land on the answer through which we can heal from our childhood experiences too. And if applied, it would change your healing process like he has mine profoundly. Enjoy the episode. Nathan, for someone who's going has just tuned into this episode, why should they stay and listen? Oh, why should they stay and listen to little old me? I've, I've got to be compelling here. Um, you know, I, I love what you guys talk about on this show, particularly about childhood stuff. I've done a lot of this work. And I reckon what I could offer and maybe what you, my dear listener, <laughs> could take away is I reckon in one sentence over my last few years of being back in Adelaide, I think I know the answer to how we can heal a lot of this stuff that's gone on in our childhood. And I would be honored to share some stories and that juicy little gem of an insight. So stick around for that because I think... It might be helpful. Childhood then. How was your childhood? Oh, I feel like I just stepped into therapy. <laughs> Do you have a little couch I can lie down on? Because, yeah. <laughs> how, how was my childhood? Wow. Um, you know, I think if you asked me five years ago, I would have said it was great. It was fine. Because I had food. I had shelter. Uh, I had 
two parents. They didn't get divorced, you know. One of six kids in the family, so plenty of brothers and sisters. Well, one sister, four brothers You're the to play with. I wasn't the youngest. I was kind of shared middle. Number three, the Jan Brady. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, on the surface, I think everything was pretty great. My, my, my dad was a minister of a church. My mother was the doting pastor's wife. We lived next door to the church in the manse. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, we're very put together, religious. My parents both found Jesus in their late teens. And so, yeah, I thought everything was pretty good. But it, it's interesting, the last five years have been a bit of a journey of uncovering what it was that I grew up in. And yeah, I think to answer that question, looking back, it wasn't the easiest childhood. In fact, I actually think it was quite traumatic. So um, upbringing, I think, was pretty pretty hard. And the last five years or so have been just peeling back those layers of the onion and wondering when the hell it's going to end. <laughs> Actually, I think it has come to at least some sort of ending. But, um, but yeah, look, looking back at our, at our past can sometimes be very tricky. While you're uncovering and peeling off that onion, how often do you cry? Oh, <laughs> see, that's the thing with onions, right? They make us cry. And I wish I cried more because when you live most of your life suppressing a lot of things that are uncomfortable to look at, um, you get really good at suppressing your emotions, right? I don't get angry. I don't cry. I don't have this stuff called emotions. That doesn't come up for me. And so, um, yeah, it's been a real challenge these last few years when, when going through a, a place of grief. Yeah, how can I cry? How can I anger? How can I let all these things out? So thankfully, there is a little bit of crying going on. But I do feel that when I cry now, it's almost like a special occasion. I'm like, don't stop. <laughs> don't mess it up. Don't get distracted. Like, let that, let those really therapeutic tears come out and, and do some of that work. Mm -hmm. Let's circle back before you started this work. Yeah. What triggered it? What triggered the thought of like, I need to go back and figure out what happened then? Yeah, so interesting. Can I just say that we dived in really deep here? I know, right? <laughs> very quickly like, too. Let's, this usually happens at about the three-quarter point in a podcast. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, let's just dive in. <laughs> Look, I, um, yeah, I always felt, um, this is, this is going to sound really weird, but I was living in Sydney for 15 years. So I was born in Adelaide and I moved to Sydney around 2004. Um, went off to be a voiceover artist in the big smoke in Sydney and... I uh, also got a development deal with Sony Music at that time. I thought I was going to be a, a pop star, believe it or not. Um, and so I moved over to Sydney and, and was living that life. And it was great to get out of Adelaide in many ways. Um, but yeah, I had this sense towards the end of my time in, in Sydney. And I was spending a bit of time in the US. And I just kept thinking about The Lion King. Um, not the crappy remake, right? We're talking the OG, <laughs> yeah. the real thing, the 2D animated goodness. And um, yeah, just the whole idea with, you know, Simba going away and having his Hakuta Matata time with Timon and Pumbaa. And I kind of had the sense of like, oh, have I been, have I been Hakuta Matataring, right, in Sydney? Have I just been doing the no worries thing? And is there something I need to address? Is there something I need to revisit and look at 
And the more I thought about it, there was this sense of like, yeah, there has been a little bit of running away from Adelaide. But, but more than that, like there's also an opportunity to like reclaim my throne and i mean that very just personally like stepping into my own personal power and rather than being scared and running away saying hey i deserve to be where i need to be and you know i'm allowed to be in adelaide and i don't need to carry that shame right i mean simba thought he killed mufasa but he didn't spoiler alert for anyone (laughs) that hasn't seen the lion king and likewise i just feel like i had a lot of shame around adelaide that you know i was a failure i'd kind of done a lot of bad stuff and that i just wasn't a great person but realizing over these last five years no that wasn't me that was what was put onto me and that's sometimes what happens when you're in um, a system that's a little dysfunctional and they're wanting to put their blame put their shame on someone so my journey has really been about giving that shame back and not carrying that anymore which has been very very liberating quick one Can you please take a second and follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us from? I'm so tempted to ask a very simple question. Yeah, please. (laughs) If the listeners haven't figured this out yet, (laughs) you are an emotion researcher. Oh, yes. (laughs) And you talk a lot about shame. (laughs) And just so we're all on the same page, Mm. just tell us a bit more about that emotion, shame. Ooh. Can I stop? Can I stop? Yeah. What is emotion? Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's, um, okay. let's unpack that first. Okay, so we'll, we'll start with emotion. Yeah, yeah. feel like I'm a school teacher. Number one, number two, uh, <laughs> we'll start with emotion, then we'll go to, yes, we'll go to shame. That sounds, that sounds great. So look, um, what is emotion? Is that the question? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, because I'm researching emotion in my PhD at the moment, and there are a lot of emotion researchers that are still arguing about this. Like some would say that... You know, their little feelings like inside out the movie, you know, like joy and sadness and anger that pop up in our in our minds or our psyches. Um, And then others would argue that it's, you know, it's so complicated. Emotions aren't really what we imagined them to be previously. They're, you know, these thoughts and feelings and behaviors and sensations and these very abstract entities that um, can vary depending on context and, and perception. So. So, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, the the jury's still out as far as a technical definition. But for me, what they've been in my own personal recovery is if I could define emotions, I would say that emotions are data, like they're human data. And the reason I like that perspective and that definition is because, as I shared growing up, sometimes sadness wasn't allowed or anger wasn't allowed or sometimes joy wasn't allowed if people were in a bad mood (laughs) you know you're being too happy you're being too this but then sometimes you're not being enough that and so it's always an appraisal right um you know looking at the emotions and that's not acceptable now i'm on a podcast i should be feeling insert x emotion but the, the the way um i like thinking about emotions now from this data perspective is that um when we have a spreadsheet, right, we don't say, oh, that number, I don't want that number there. I'm going to suppress it because you're messing up what the data is trying to tell you. you. You look at it and you say, wow, this is, you know, it's probably not what I maybe wanted, but it's data. I can learn from this and pivot accordingly. And when our emotions come up, it's really our body and our experience, our mood, our life telling us something. And we get to take that and say, okay, cool. I'm feeling sad right now. Why? 
or I'm feeling disappointed or remorseful or I'm feeling something, how can I use this sensation to make a better decision for myself and those around me? And when we ignore our emotions and when we ignore the data, it's kind of at our own peril. So emotions matter. Emotions are really important. And it's very easy to suppress them and deny them and say, hashtag positive vibes only. (laughs) But yeah, when we block out the whole spectrum of emotion, the full gamut of this kind of colorful gradient, when we block that out, we're not getting the full picture. So emotions are super important. And that's the way I like to look at them and Mm. define them. I'll let you answer Amin's question, but I have another question to come back to. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, yeah, you've heard the term storifying data, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's almost this concept of storifying the data where the data represents your emotions. Yeah. And actually, you're trying to get to the bottom line of what's the story you're telling yourself every damn time. Mm. But you're almost validating it with all these different data points to use your data analogy yeah and actually is this the right story is this actually telling me a useful story yeah is actually helping me i love that well i actually love like your whole analogy emotions <laughs> like one perspective is data i was like, oh, okay interesting i never thought about it that way <laughs> yeah back to the question yes you know what emotion is yeah from your personal journey yeah now tell us a bit more about shame bit of shame well i mean you've probably both heard of brene brown yeah um i read an article earlier this uh this week it's a little bit scathing but it just made me laugh because i love brene brown but it was all about how um everybody on linkedin now has learned how to talk brene brownian what's the, <laughs> the phrase i'm like wow i think i know brene brownian <laughs> It's a great language <laughs> and they're being very cynical, but Brene Brown's amazing. And, you know, obviously anyone that has success, you know, needs to have their detractors. But um, yeah, Brene's done a lot of work around shame and, uh, and she's not the first. There are a lot of people before her as well. Um, and I've heard it said before, um, I reckon this was from John Bradshaw, who is uh, an incredible, he's, he's no longer with us, but he's, uh, he's an amazing Uh, author that writes a lot about uh, family systems and also the inner child, a lot of those concepts. And uh, yeah, he says that shame is the master emotion. It's kind of like the emotion that really like is at the core of most of our (laughs) troubled selves, right? Um, You know, we look at anger um, what fuels that sometimes and it's kind of shame like sadness shame like you kind of name it anything that's uh operating in a way that's you know as i like to kind of say like puts us in our b game rather than our a game anything that pulls us into a state that's probably not our best selves i reckon shame is the underlying emotion for that um, and sometimes you have to dig a few layers a few onion peels <laughs> before you get to it but at the back of it it's usually a sense of shame. I'm not worthy of being seen or heard or known or understood for the one I truly am. And that really cuts to our core. So then you end up going down the guilt path. Yeah, totally. Which they're very similar. Although I have heard it said before that shame is uh, a little different to guilt in the sense that guilt is um, I did something bad and shame is I am bad. Yeah, so shame kind of like embodies it to that deeper core level. identity. It, exactly. So, um, but yeah, interesting, I've, I've interesting bra- emotions. I browsed through Brenda Brown's Atlas of the Heart Atlas book. The heart, yeah. yeah, that's why she tries to give you the language behind a number of different emotions so you can recognize them when they come up. 
Mm. Back to your earlier point, emotions or data, right? How does one become a good data analyst of their emotions? <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I love that question. I love where man. this is going. I do love where it's going. Well, there are some um, authors. Uh, I know Mark Brackett is one. He's the head of the Center for Emotional Intelligence at Yale. And he likes to talk about being an emotion scientist. An emotion scientist is someone that uh, looks at their day-to-day and starts doing experiments, you know? It's just like, hey, I reacted this way. Hmm, that's interesting. I'll observe that. What if I get up half hour earlier? And what if instead of going straight to the iPad, I get a glass of water? And what if? And just like doing little tweaks, doing little experiments, and then analyzing that data, looking at that and saying, okay, so... You know, this was the input, this was the output. Can I make a new hypothesis tomorrow and see how that affects me? And so I think we are not just analysts, but also, you know, experimenters in that sense. We're kind of designing the experiment every day. And then we get to analyze that and see what we can tweak and change to help us tap into that A game, our best selves. Mm -hmm. So you're the subject of the experiment, but you're also the observer. (gasps) You are, which is so hard. Yeah. It's so hard and it's so cruel, right? Like, um, I've, I've heard this said before that like self-help or any of this like um, this work that we do, it's so hard because like we are the person experiencing it. And I admire anybody that's gone through that hardship and healed themselves because you're not just working full time with another person. You're the same person and you want to heal. And then you're the same person that's telling you that it's impossible. And then you've got to talk yourself down. Like it's so, it's almost like a cruel little battle within that we have to be both uh, the, uh, the experimenter and the analyst. It's there, tricky. There is a phenomenon that I've ex- I experienced over and over and over again. I can, I can, safely say from the conversations I've had with friends, they go through this as well. You recognize something's not working for you. For example, where you said, get up earlier, get a glass of water, stay off the phone for the first half an hour, one hour, whatever. And then you observe that, my God, I feel so much better. Mm. I'm actually like refreshed and productive and I just feel my energy level is being a lot higher. The next day, right back at <laughs> the mm. day before the experiment, although you know, that this is actually not good for you. Mm. Why does that happen? Oh, man. It's an interesting question. <laughs> I've got a theory, but I'm not going to answer. I f- I'm going to let Nathan go. I, f- I feel like you've probably got a better no. answer. <laughs> no, no, you're listening go. to Ali talking. I'm like, how do you know my life? Because, I mean, it's very relatable, right? I think it's almost the human experience. But, oh, look, yeah, I think really the key to a lot of this is not only self-awareness, right, to actually pay attention, because many of us don't. (laughs) Um, We have to actually stop and pay attention, but also that desire to know that change is possible. Um, There's a lot of work done around mindset. I think Carol Dweck is one Mm. of those leaders where it's, you know, the fixed mindset or the growth mindset. I think if you have a fixed mindset and you're like, well, what's the point in changing? Because, you know, I've tried before, it didn't really work. And so you're stuck in your paradigm this kind of myopic point of view where nothing is really uh changeable and moldable and flexible um but yeah that growth mindset really says hey you know what didn't work today and it may not work tomorrow but i have hope and i have i guess this bit of 
faith or you know open-mindedness that change is possible so mm. i think mindset comes into it yeah i'd love to hear what you think i mean oh i mean i think there is a strong element of self-awareness on what you truly love doing and you you often change your habit and you try to manage your time and you try to be disciplined and Ali is one of the most disciplined people I've met in my life, literally. I have mm. so much respect uh, to Ali for that. And one of the things I tried to play with and read about is it's all well and good to wake up, let's say, early and drink a glass of water. The question is, why are you doing that? What are you doing after a glass of water? Is mm. it something you deeply love? Or is it something you read in a self-help book <laughs> that it's good for you? Yeah. So... I think the key one there for me was you've got to replace say like a bad habit or something that's not working for you. No, it's not with a good habit. No, no. With something you deeply love mm. because that's the human brain, just the reward system. Yeah. You know, you've got to find that trick to your brain every time. It's yeah. almost like the polarity of like the emotion itself. Yeah. It's like, oh, I wish I could turn my phone. Like you wake up in the morning, oh, but if I don't, I actually have a glass of water and then I get to, you know, go for my you know, morning coffee mm. in 30 minutes, which means I get to enjoy it a bit more. Maybe I get to journal yeah. and have more time. How yeah. cool is that, right? Yeah. So it's like, how do you bring that perspective of like a reward mm. for you that you deeply love? It's got to be something fun and you love. Yeah. There's a flip side to the coin to that though. I agree with what you're saying, but there are some practices that you're not going to love until you do it for a while. That's right? true. So namely journaling. For most people, generally, is like, what do you mean I should write? And you only do it for a, a period of time until you realize the impact it has on you. Hmm. I've seen, I know you journal, Nathan. What, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Oh, um, I love journaling. Yeah. I, I would just piggyback off what you guys are saying. I think what I'm hearing is it has to align with your values as well, right? Um, because that's it's that whole why, you know, that... That Simon Sinek. Start with why. <laughs> Start with why. Mm. What's the thing that's, you know, and usually our values are our passions and they are the things that light us up. Um, but yeah, connecting to that's so important, right? And as far as journaling goes for me, I, um, yeah, I reached a point in my life where I realized that I was just so fuzzy on a lot of things about my life and circling back to that upbringing, you know, just wasn't sure, you know, what's, what's my what's my favorite color like what's my favorite food like what do i where do i want to live what do i want to be like um there was so much about my identity that i had uh suppressed a lot of people pleasing going on a lot of like you tell me what i am chameleonism going on but um i think journaling was a chance to find out who i am it was a chance to be an emotion scientist a data analyst <laughs> and actually look at what's going on to look at where my mood was shifting day to day to have it on paper to be able to explore it to have a safe space where there was nothing off limits um i like to think about journaling in the same way that we clean our teeth like dental hygiene is so important right and, and we know that now and so we clean our teeth without thinking about it at least once a day generally but uh what about mental hygiene, right? Emotional hygiene. And I think journaling is really that kind of hygiene for me. And I, and I love that um, I, I can really know within myself now that there's no part in my psyche that's off limits to me. Like, uh, I'm sure, you know, there's always things that are going on in my subconscious and it's that constant hygiene, right? But I just, uh, 
I do appreciate the fact that, um, yeah, with the, you put a few years of journaling behind you and you've just got so much freedom and, and clarity. And, and my value around that was I, I, I really value authenticity and how can I show up in the world as my truest self if I don't know who that is? And so mm. journaling became, as, as you mentioned, the early, it's like it, it's hard to get into. But it, for me, it was always that thought of, hey, I, I, I want to cultivate this habit because my value of showing up as my truest self in the world is at jeopardy if I don't do this. And so what's my best self looking like? He, he's a journaler. Yeah. And the choice became pretty clear from that. Yeah. Studying, studying journaling is always, I remember, was quite challenging for me because I would grab a pen and a piece of paper and I'm like, okay, where do I begin now? Mm. And back to what Damien was saying, one of the, my main things in life is like, if I want to make something happen, I'll make it a habit. So what I did was first thing in the morning, I would put my pen and paper on the, on the dining table mm. When I wake up, it's there. So that's a trigger for me to get on it. And after, like, I think a few months of just saying a couple of sentences, basically the same thing. Grateful for this, grateful for that, grateful for this. I'm like, okay, let's just dig a bit deeper. Sat there for five minutes and it just poured out of me. It mm. was such a liberating experience that kind of got me addicted to journaling. <laughs> because I do it now every morning. Beautiful. Like, I don't miss a morning because with, and I, I miss a couple of mornings where I, back to the experiment, I feel my emotions. I'm like, whoa, mm. I missed the journaling today. This is not right. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, it's really interesting you. because I was gonna ask Nathan, do you do that every day as a habit or is it emotionally triggered? Because that's my style mm. and I write pages and pages yeah. and they're often a lot more powerful pieces. Mm. I've tried doing you know the habit and mm. i stuck to it mm. but i read through it and going back to the idea of being a data analyst of your own emotions mm. the data quality completeness and accuracy is a lot higher when you're right when you feel emotionally triggered yes because that's raw yeah that's raw data. real raw yeah. data you take it you look at it that yeah. was my experience yeah i'm curious to hear about yours yeah, I mean, both are great, right? I would say for the last five years or so, I've been more of an Ali in the way that, like, no questions asked, like, you need to journal. Um, I've, I've had a lot of healing these last few years, and I've actually gone a little bit more to the Amin side, where, um, yeah, I just, uh, I've got a lot more clarity in my own mind now that I'm able to think and feel in real time and have a lot more of that clarity that I only got from journaling. And so that's a real gift in and of itself. But I do feel that when those emotional moments come up, I'm like, hey, where's the journal? Yeah. I gotta have the journal. Yeah. You run to it and you yeah. let it all pour out. And because um, there were times with my discipline of like, I need to journal every day. Because um, I always had this thing where I had to finish the page. It's probably a little bit of, you know, OCD maybe I don't know but I'm like I've got to finish a page and so it's got to if I start a new page it's like well I've got to finish that page too but I, I remember getting to points in the page where it just felt like it was really hard to complete and I'd go into gratitude and start listing things but it was almost like <laughs> there was like this little boy be saying I need to go and it's just like no eat your veggies finish the page um, but yeah I think uh, I'm a little bit more now in the moment when when I feel it welling up you're like hey Need some emotional hygiene, need some mental hygiene. Let's reach for that pen. Yeah. Let's circle back to Sydney. 
Yes. You went there, the next up and coming pop star, <laughs> the voice of many things. Um, Do you want to highlight the main one? Yeah. Burgers are better. Like, oh. I think it's better, better coming from you, Nathan. Can you go for oh, it? Oh, God. Are they a sponsor of this podcast? No, they're not. No, no. Okay. Um, well, see, when I do it, I feel like I need to put like this EQ filter on me. But it was always... Um, the burgers are better at Hungry Jack's. Oh, yeah. there you go. So, <laughs> oh, my God. We are uh, not sponsored. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting. I um, yeah did that once and they kept using it. And... Yeah. Uh, I, uh, in the process, when I started, I think I was eating burgers, but somewhere through that, I became vegetarian. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know if Hungry Jacks would really like that. <laughs> the burgers so, are better at Hungry Jacks when you take out the beef. <laughs> to all the veggies. time only. <laughs> Shout out to all the veggies and vegans Aye. out there. Aye. <laughs> so, Sydney. Yes. Um, and then you've. Talked about the trigger, then wanted you to revisit the childhood. Yeah. What brought you back to Adelaide? And then how did you get into emotion research? Oh, okay. So I, uh, when I was in Sydney, and I mentioned before, I felt like, you know, that Hakuta Matata running away experience. And I think it was a healthy running away, right? We need to, we need to get a change of view. And particularly when we're talking about trauma, yeah, it's not great to stay in the place or the area or doing the things that, you know, contributed to some of that distress. That's a dear touch. So, exactly. So good. And for that reason, I've done heaps of travel too, which has been lovely, just getting away and experiencing new things. Um, so I think looking back, a lot of my reasoning for getting away from Adelaide is growing up in a really religious family. I was kind of, I took a lot of that on board too. I went to youth group and um, actually the way I got into voiceover was working on the Christian radio station here in Adelaide. Um, and I was just doing an ad for Northeast Mitsubishi actually. And Mitsubishi, uh, the agency that was taking care of that client was in Adelaide they heard my ad they called the station left a message saying we want him to be the national voice which I didn't quite understand at the time until they asked me to invoice them and I'm like what <laughs> that's why I moved to Sydney I'm like let's let's wow what, what a joy to make money I hadn't yeah. really encountered that at that point so um so yeah that's what led me there but I think um a lot of the reason of getting away was uncovering this sense that like, oh, wow, I, I have never felt like I fit into the mold that I needed to be in, in particularly this version of Christianity that, that, that I grew up in. And a lot of, a, a lot of that I found out, um, and I say found out, I always knew, but you're able to like journaling, let yourself feel it and experience it was that I was gay and I didn't, have the capacity within myself to explore that i think in the confines of um adelaide and the, the the world i was in i mean this radio station wouldn't play elton john because he was a homosexual wow and so and it's i think still the case <laughs> love love the people and the the community there but it's very like you don't conform to what it is that we need like i mean yeah, cancel culture was happening way earlier than the last few years. It happens every been, day. Yeah, exactly. If something, you know, we don't agree, let's just... Not just the US. That. Yeah, exactly. It's a thing. And so I had to wrestle, yeah, with a lot of that inner searching and integrating and, oh my God, so much like 
people always, you know, ask me if I had instances of homophobia. And of course, growing up, but like the worst cases of homophobia I had were from myself, right? Like me against myself, like don't, don't appear to feminine or don't you know don't say this or don't mention that because they might think this which might lead to that which so you're always just on display of what you feel is appropriate for other people um and so eventually when i was in sydney i I did end up coming out to my parents which was pretty big Uh, didn't didn't go that well um (laughs) and uh but there was still a lot of longing to still justify that but i'm still good i'm still okay um and I think a lot of that striving was happening, but I think coming back to Adelaide, everything in the most tragic yet beautiful way just kind of fell apart. <laughs> and yeah, it was just a chance for me to start thinking about what I needed. And um, a lot of people talk about the inner child, right? Like that part of us that, you know, therapeutically, a lot of psychotherapists suggest putting a photo of your younger self on your phone as your wallpaper and to look at what that little boy or little girl went through and to offer some some comfort and to offer self-empathy totally right yeah self-compassion because man the the shit that little dude went through and the shit that little girl went through like it's it's pretty huge for a lot of us. And I think all of us didn't escape some kind of trauma. Like growing up is just hard full stop. And it can be really little, like a little T trauma, or it can be a capital T trauma, but we go through some hard stuff. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of me dealing with that and, and through that was, um, was pretty confronting. And I thought, man, like, uh, what is it that I want to be doing with my life from here on in? I thought, you know, the, the music thing just wasn't happening. <laughs> I mean, it was, and I had a great experience, but as far as monetizing and all that stuff you need to adult, it wasn't really ticking those boxes. Um, and voiceover was good, but I, I, I kept thinking, like, I'm reading so many scripts. Like, what's my script? Like, I don't know my, you know, my, my story. My story. And journaling's great for that, right? Authenticity and authorship really which is where authenticity comes from the word like writing your own story being the author of your life that's been great but i want to start speaking that myself i want to start finding my voice in that way and yeah so all this to say i think i got to a point where i'm like um i have had such a uh an incredible journey exploring my emotional landscape how can i create tools that help people explore their emotional landscape in the most intuitive way possible and that's what led me to my phd and my research has now been about how we can conceptualize emotion in the most intuitive ways possible visually and represent that in a way that just makes a lot of sense so that's what took me to the research and i'm now at the point where i'm hopefully in my final stages of of the phd and um, i've got a company now called the mood institute and uh, we teach emotional intelligence skills in organizations working with leaders and anyone that's in a position where they need to communicate better with people and uh, boost their own levels of self-awareness and connection with others so that's uh, i feel where i'm at at the moment and it's just been this this weird uh, weird journey of uh, emotional self-discovery you're doing some cool work with emotion and colors yeah it's uh it's visual cues yeah it's it's it sounds it sounds really strange to talk about like when i say i'm doing colors and emotions 
people think it's some kind of like um <laughs> like interior decorating or <laughs> you know finding your you know how you see on tiktok or whatever they have like color matching specialists have you seen that and they kind of like run through all the colors that bring out your glow yeah um i mean my color yeah yeah actually i think the first conversation i had with you i mean was around your sweater it was just like this dashing like beige caramel kind of brown color i think it was a mustard it was a mustard how (laughs) dare i it was a mustard like a dark mustard it means very good at making the most of it out of his clothes to bring his very nice eyes out he's very good at that thank you (laughs) this is great (laughs) i feel like we need to go around the circle now and give each other a compliment (laughs) (laughs) emotion and colors exactly So I'll let you say your name and one compliment to the person to you. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, where were we? Um, so yes, like visual cues with yeah, colors. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I mean, a lot of us talk about like you know I'm seeing red, or I'm feeling blue, or I'm green with envy. You know, there's all these words we use, but it really got me thinking like. How literal is that? And also, because uh, Ali and I were actually involved in something called the E-Challenge, the Australian E-Challenge back in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we, that's where we first met. Yeah. And, um, and back then I was trying to come up with a product based on my long love for music. Um, I was using music as a lot of therapy for me, particularly lyrically, like just listening to a lot of lyrics combined with music. I did a TEDx talk on it. You can check it out. Um, But yeah, a a lot of that passion was kind of accumulating into like, what if that could be an app where you're able to source songs based on how you feel, you know, the lyrics can meet you where you're at and the music shifts and changes to meet, you know, your emotional shifts. And the big question was, how do we, um, how do we approach that? from a point of view that is just intuitive where you, you're not having to say, I feel and typing in a word or getting primed by words that are there, like to be able to just feel into it in the way that music does. Right. Cause if you're primed, you start force fitting it totally. Right. You know? Yeah. Square bang into like a round hole. like, Oh yeah, yeah that is kind of how I feel. Exactly. And then you press play. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like that happens with Spotify sometimes where I'm 100%. scrolling and I'm like, there's a playlist called Life Sucks. And I'm like, oh, I guess life does suck. Let's play that one. I'm like, no, that's not what I want. <laughs> Maybe there's a podcast called Open Diaries. I'm not sure how you feel. <laughs> Open Diaries. It's pretty intriguing. Open that page. Exactly. Oh, so good. And so, yeah, look at the, the system that I landed on was just, well, color is really intuitive. And so, you know, we've got the red zone or the... You know, the blue zone of the greats, all these different colors that go on. And a lot of my um, PhD research was kind of begging to answer that question. How can we use some of these subconscious cues to figure out where emotions fit together? If we can start labeling common color emotion associations and color is kind of a 3D space in and of itself, it might actually start mapping how far emotions tend to fit conceptually from each other and if we you know pull the emotion shade down as darker are they more negative if we lighten it is it more positive if it goes red is that more passionate and if we invert red to cyan is that you know more relaxed and it's like a heat map it's a heat map and it's measurable because we're using it in the lab at the moment where we ask people if emotions were colors what color are you feeling and we've now found that we can predict the emotion they're tending to feel based on really common color emotion associations 
which obviously are different in different individuals, but it's been super fascinating. And I use a lot of these cues in my training with the Mood Institute to say, you know, this is how they fit together. And it's a great, simple, intuitive way of understanding the full emotional spectrum. I have a burning question. Oh, mate. You're interviewing these people. You ask them, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. Then you correlate it to a color. Yeah. Do you take note what color are they wearing? (gasps) So interesting. I don't. Oh. We haven't recorded that data. That would be... Sh- oh. Why didn't you design the experiment with me, Amin? What were we thinking? Like, I do it for free this day. Oh, thanks. Well, mate, if you ever want to do a PhD, I'm sure you can do a great follow-up. <laughs> no, I'm just really, yeah. really curious. Um, I always think about this every morning, funny enough. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said this out loud. This is weird. Yeah. Is what do I feel like wearing today? And the question is like, how do I feel? Yeah. And I have this thing with like not wearing black. Other knows me. I rarely wear black on black. Yeah, it's really rare. When I do it, it's a sign that Sounds I literally could not be effed in the morning to think about anything, and I'm probably mentally down. Mm. Not because because normally I just want to put a, some sort of a color. Yeah, a light blue, a light green, a yellow. Everyone knows I love my colors. Yeah, and I was thought, do people? like think consciously or do they just like open the wardrobe they put something on there's got to be a relationship between how Mm. you really feel and what you choose to wear because it's actually subconscious choice that you make yeah not everyone goes like oh i'm feeling fashionista today i'm gonna put something amazing (laughs) maybe on the weekend you do right but sometimes even during the week even like like your work outfit like how do you Mm. like your shirt to look how do you like to present yourself to your colleagues do you like confidence do you feel confident where are you in your project? Where are you with your timelines? Mm-hmm. You know, I reckon like, there's a lot in there. I reckon there is. And a lot of people do say to me when I tell them I'm doing color and emotion, one of the common things is, oh, because when I wear dot, 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 like a lot of people dress to suit their mood, they express that through their clothes. Yeah, it's interesting. Not, not sure, but we'll, we'll see yep. in the future. future maybe uh, someone, someone else's PhD, PhD, but definitely not mine. Definitely not yours. Never know. Never know. Hi, I just wanted to quickly pop in and say that at this point of the episode, the recording introduced an echo. I'm not sure why this has happened, but it only last about a minute or so. Let's get back to the episode. Nathan, in your, in your, in your, in your journey through healing through your child traumas, mm. you said something at the start that really caught my attention and I even jotted down. Giving the shame back. Mm. How'd you do that? Ooh, if you can visualize a big plastic bag, single use plastic, which makes it even more ugly, and it's full of like black, sludgy slime. I think for some of us, that bag was passed down generationally. And no one wants to look at that stuff. And I think sometimes people have kids because it's the expected thing and it's what you do, but they're a very convenient target. And this shame was passed down to me. Let me give it to the next generation. And we do it subconsciously. No one wants to, I don't think, harm their children in in many ways. But I think when we don't have that emotional hygiene and explore our own shadow we end up projecting it you know that's the bad kid or that's the one that carries our shame and you get kids that end up carrying it for their parents and then 
they pass it right on because that's what it is. That's what you do. And so um, for me, a lot of the handing it back meant not playing small to appease people anymore and to say, you know what, I, 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 I quite like myself. And um, if we return to this whole idea of this inner child and we're championing this inner child, like, I, I want to help you, I don't want to fight against you, um, we actually give this shame back. We, we hand back <laughs> this bag of sludge because we don't want this, this little kid to carry it anymore. He's carried it for so long. It's not right. It's not fair. And so it's just saying, hey, this was yours. It was never meant to be mine. Um, and that's, I think, for me, how a lot of healing has happened. I don't, I don't need to carry that anymore. And I think I, I, I mentioned earlier about w what I feel <laughs> I can offer our conversation today. And, and it's been so um, it's been so healing for me to do that that inner child work. I spent a lot of weekends back in the suburb that I grew up in. I just go back to wander the streets, right, and to feel that sense of connection with that with that little boy. Uh, sometimes I even make sure one of my hands isn't in my pocket to kind of feel like I'm holding the hand of this little boy walking with me. It's very it's very real for me, and it's this very um, connected moment. And I would say that anyone that's relating to anything we've talked about today, I think the, uh, the tip, the secret, the thing <laughs> that I've really stumbled upon is that the solution to a lot of our emotional healing is to become our own loving parent. To be that parent that we may or may not have had for whatever reason, like everyone's got their things that they're dealing with, but we recognize that it wasn't our fault and we are victims in some ways but we also have a responsibility to now parent this part of our psyche this part of ourselves that needs the love and the care that needs to be championed and if we show up like we we're saying with self-empathy and self-compassion if we're able to look at what being a great parent is and what that definition is and turning that inside into ourselves rather than looking for that love and approval outside, if we can be that beautiful, loving parent to ourselves, that's where everything heals. And we're talking earlier about, you know, drinking that glass of water in the morning or not being on the iPad or the iPhone and all these best things that we, we know we're meant to do. I guess my question I ask myself now is, what would a loving parent do? And a loving parent probably would give me a little bit of iPad time, but not before school, not before work. <laughs> and yeah, like I can have Cocoa Pops once in a while, but generally it's going to be oatmeal. <laughs> like we get to make really great decisions for ourselves, not because we're depriving ourselves, but because like, hey, I want to champion you. Like I'm going to be a great coach and, and inspire you, but I'm also going to be a great nurturer. And when you're hurt or sad, I'm not going to shame you for feeling that. I'm going to say, tell me more. Do you want to do a journal? Like, do we, do we want to write this out? What do we want to do? Do we want to go for a walk? W what do you need right now? And let me be that beautiful, loving force for you, that beautiful, loving parent. And for me, that has what, that, that's been what my psyche had been missing all those years, all that time in Sydney, <laughs> all of that Hakuta Matata era. I hadn't had that return to self, like the loving, nurturing parent that I always needed. And finally, I got to see and hear and know and understand Nathan. And that's where it all changed. Do you 
do you look at the language as part of your research, as part of your personal experience, actually? That's a better question. Because I always wonder whether the lack to express your emotion is just the natural confinement and boundaries of the English language, for example. Mm. I mean, we're both bilingual, and I, and we know from just speaking another language, then the question becomes, what about language in its totality? Mm. All language in the world, does it really ever allow you to express your true emotions? Yeah, so good. I mean, I think that's a lot of what inspired my research using more nonverbal cues because it can be so limiting, right? If I was to say I'm feeling upset, am I more in the red zone, mad, or in the blue zone, sad? Because it kind of means both, but not really. And there's a lot of words like that where they're just very vague and ambiguous, which sucks for measurement. It sucks for emotion science because you ask people to, you know, respond with words and it's just not great. Um, so, yeah, I think we are limited by words, but that's why it's great to, it's great to do some of that, uh, that inner work and explore how it feels in our body and, and to use other modalities, whether it's listening to music or wearing a certain color shirt or whatever things we do. Because um, words are amazing, but they, for me, they, they don't always cut it. Nathan, I think what you said before um, around being that loving parent that you never had mm. for yourself, I'm not sure about others, but it's got, it has resonated with me a lot. In that journey where you were discovering that loving parent for yourself, you being the loving parent for yourself, which I'm sure involved a lot of work, did that involve some hard conversation with your own parents? Mm. Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, in the way of uh, I was able to disclose as much as my nervous system would allow, because I think when you grow up in a particular environment, you... Uh, yeah, it's, it's triggering and we, we resort to our old patterns. You know, I become the scared little boy that doesn't want to upset them or hurt their feelings or all that kind of stuff. So I've navigated that to the best of my ability. But um, it's also meant uh, that I've had to take distance as well, which is I feel is maybe one of the biggest taboos <laughs> that I come across. It hasn't gone down very well with even some some friends and different people in your life you know they're your parents they did the best they can and all those things i think which are very valid and and i understand them but um but yeah for me i keep coming back to that little boy like he wasn't championed he wasn't seen or heard or known or understood and that's not okay for me anymore and so um yeah it's reached a point where i need to make that a priority and things may change <laughs> but uh yeah look this work, I think any internal work is not for the faint of heart, but I think particularly anything resembling childhood trauma, it's the hardest thing you can do. And I think grieving the loss of a life is generally viewed as like the epitome of grief. And, I, and I've lost people in my life before to death and it's really hard. But I actually think with what I've gone through over the last few years sometimes even harder to grieve the living right because yeah it brings up a lot of stuff what more could i do 
Was it my fault? Am I to blame? Am I just being temperamental? Is it all in my head? All of these things. And that haunts you every day. So it's, it's not easy work. But again, what would a loving parent do? And if um, I don't have kids, but if I had a little boy and he was getting bullied, even if it was by people that are meant to be supportive, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let that happen to him. I wouldn't say, man up, go back to it or be nicer, <laughs> or maybe it is you. May, have you thought about not being such a dipshit? <laughs> like you right. don't say that to kids. You say, hey, how can I protect you? And what do you need from me to make you safe so you can grow, so that your little nervous system that's shaking, like what can I do to protect you? And yeah, being a people pleaser, not easy to let people down, but I'm now learning through my beautiful open diary journaling sessions <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, I, yeah it's all about, all about protecting him. Did you ponder forgiveness at any point? Yeah, oh, always. But you know, I asked before, am I allowed to swear on the podcast? Absolutely. Yeah, wow. I had this mantra, and I don't necessarily agree with this, but I think it was a healthy phase I needed to go through because I grew up in the Christian world, right? The, the religious world, where forgiveness is such a virtue. And, um, you know, you. I think in the Bible, someone asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Is it seven? And he's like, 70 times seven. Big number. Just keep going. Keep forgiving, which is great. But... Uh, and I talk about this with some of the workshops I do. Um, empathy is beautiful, but the dark side of that is passivity and it's being a bit of a doormat and being taken advantage of. That's and right. so for me, my mantra, which again, F-bomb alert, was fuck forgiveness. Um, and it was so confronting to say that because forgiveness was the best thing. But it was like, you know what? Let's put that aside for now because... Um, I've heard it said before that forgiveness is like the caboose at the end of the train. Like you can't put that first. It's the thing that happens when everything else has been completed. Um, if I, uh, you know, if I had, if I had a kid and uh, I was, you know, doing something in another room and a, and a person came in and said, okay, so Nathan, uh, something happened out there to your kid, but I just need to know before I tell you what it is, do you forgive me? I'd be like, Dude, what happened? And he's like, no, 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 I'll tell you, but do you forgive? It's just like, I need, I need to get into that other room and see what's going on. And I'll push you away if I need to, to find out what's happening. And it's like, Nathan, you didn't forgive him? It's like, well, no, I didn't, because I need to explore what needs forgiving first. Like, what actually is happening? I don't know what's going on yet. And so I think there's something to be said for actually experiencing, knowing, diving in, and then... Once you've done your healing and once you've looked into it and felt it and understood it and done all your work, forgiveness, yeah, maybe not, yes or no. But forgiveness really is something that we're able to give to ourselves to say, hey, I've experienced it and it is well with me. It's well with my soul. I'm okay with this and I'm ready to move on. That's what forgiveness is. Consciously forgiving rather than saying, Oh, I forgive that person. Totally. Whilst you deeply actually just yes. can't stand them. Which is where resentment them, is born from, right? That's like, right. It's just like, everything's fine, but it's it's not. It's not actually looking at what's happening. I like that. It's it's obviously you have to earn forgiveness. Yes, I think you so. You don't just say, oh, I choose to forgive you. Voila. Mm. Well, it's intellectual dishonesty, right? It's not actually 
giving us I like this intellectual dishonesty. Yeah. Oh, we all do it often, right? It's I like just that. Like, yeah. It's, mm. it's not what needs to happen. One thing that I've been pondering on recently, I've heard I've been going through something similar that you are have gone through in the past a year, year and a half. Mm. Um, but I was, as you, it's, it's like the when you buy a car of a certain brand, you start noticing everything else yes. as the same brand. <laughs> yes. It's the same thing. And yeah. the, when you start opening this kind of uh, area of your life where you're trying to tap into and heal from or understand, and you start talking to about other people and you start seeing the same patterns in others, one thing that I've been trying to answer, how do you distinguish between what is truly caused by traumas and what is not? And what is that is your responsibility to deal with in a sense of these are your behaviors now mm. and has got nothing to do with what happened to you in the past. Mm. How do you do that? Because mm. there is a, there's a trap of seeing some people falling in. It's like, no, nah, I can't be bothered getting off the couch because I'm traumatized of whatever mm. happened mm. 20 years ago. So interesting, hey. I mean, in my experience, a lot of these things, even when I think they're not linked to trauma, mm. they are. Like yeah, it's maybe. Like actually, it's like a yeah. domino effect. Like maybe, kind yeah. of like, it's like, where do you like, how do you untangle all this? When, when trauma taints everything, it's so hard to untangle what is and what isn't. Yeah. But I really, I totally feel and understand your point. Because um, I've struggled with this myself of like, I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be a victim. But then to realize, oh my God, I am a victim. Can you imagine someone that's a victim of assault saying, you know, bleeding on the ground saying, I don't want to be a victim. It's like, well, you are, bro. Mm. Like, Accept like it. This, it. Yeah, totally. And then also um, we reach a point once we've done our grieving, once we've done all that stuff, like what is our responsibility? And I think all of us, because they talk about responsibility being the ability to respond. Um, and, and I kind of like that definition because it's like we all have that ability. What are we choosing today to, to respond with? And sometimes that does mean, hey, I'm like, I feel super triggered today. It's really hard to get out of bed. Maybe that's fine once in a while. But at what point do we say, hey, this is no longer serving the person I seek to become? Mm. <laughs> I, need to, I need to make a change. And, um, and I've seen uh, a whole range of people even within my immediate family, um, when people learn and have, as maybe you've experienced a bit, Ali, that, that eye-opening experience of like, wow, I guess, in my case, I identified it as, oh, I've got complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. Mm. But then there are some people that have that and they're like, ah, oh, it all makes sense. Therefore, I can start pointing the finger at these people. Therefore, I can use this at every turn to make sure that, I don't have to do my work. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that can become a trap when we start, um, I don't know, we start losing our ability to respond. Because at any point, right, we, we do get a choice. Even when life has thrown us a horrific um, series of events, we still do have a choice every day of how we're going to use that catastrophic narrative and rewrite it into something that can help us make the most of the time we have. Yeah. We all have that choice. Yeah. As hard as it is to say and to hear sometimes, we all, we all have that choice. While we add it, relationships. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Oh my God. Well, We're we going added. deeper that took it. Oh, and deeper. Man, exactly. And deeper here. Ooh, I love it though. You like are it. someone who has or are doing the work. 
but your partner isn't, so you know they need to do it. What do you do in that situation? Mm. Because you can't be the loving parent for yourself and her, your yeah, partner at the same time. True, they need to become the loving parent for they themselves, do. right? They do. Starts bringing up the old, oh my God, I didn't know this word till recently. When I say recently, like five years back. <laughs> the old B word, good old boundaries. Mm. Oh my goodness. I like that. What's a boundary? I didn't know. And I thought for me, like, yeah, boundaries were just, <laughs> they were very permeable. I mean. The drawing crayons and then we delete them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, that's a fence, right? now, nah, man, you just drew with a crayon. Is it a blue crayon or a green crayon? It's going to be a different emotion. Hey, hey, what kind? Is it a red boundary? Blue boundary? <laughs> oh, man. Look. I always like to think of boundaries as, you know, it's almost like a fence to your house or a front door. And my front door and my front gate was just all the way open. And, oh, man, people just march through, sitting on my bed, jumping on my bed with their shoes off. Um, and I would be, you know, making the bed for them and dusting it off and saying it's okay. But to be able to have those boundaries and to say, hey, this is where... You know, my skin boundary ends. <laughs> if it's outside of my body, it's not my thing. It's not my responsibility. But um, I think very often we can be that loving parent to somebody else in our relationship. And it's the way culture's wired, right? Like every pop song talks about baby. <laughs> mm. You're my baby. You're my like, you know, the one that's going to take care of me. And it's this whole nurturing. Going back to language. Oh, it's, yeah. Right back to language. Pop culture. Yeah. Right back to language. Culture, it is right. The way we use words. But it's all about, you know, uh, this codependent, like, I'll save you <laughs> kind of thing. But um, you make me happy. Yeah, totally. I want to be with you. My life's pointless without you. I can't live if living is without you. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, to be, able to, to be able to shift that, I think, is so important. Because really, uh, we can't give to another person ever unless we're really full and complete within ourselves it feels selfish but i think it's actually quite self-full yeah right to be able to make sure that relationship with our inner self that maybe that little boy little girl that hasn't quite um gotten the love they need until we've really completed that step of this uh this video game of life like we can't we can't level up you know to the next level until we've completed this task and that's the same for relationships too and every dysfunctional relationship you might notice is people trying to save each other like playing this little game of like you hold me up i'll hold you up you didn't hold me up today oh look like, it's this whole like but we have to find that within ourselves in every great relationship yeah two people that are individual pillars that are able to support and be with each other but they are self-contained and their inner child is integrated and uh, is at home in their own body. I want to keep talking, but I am... <laughs> Same. I'm being very conscious. Of I'm pretty sure we've yeah. been talking for just under an hour. Okay, sure. Um, we have an ending tradition. Yeah. Uh, previous guest has left you a question. Okay. And I'm going to play it. Oh, right. Yeah. Hmm. I'm excited to hear it now. <laughs> I like that, the good old B word. Me? The B word. If you could go back and speak to your 16-year-old self when you're first learning to drive, 
what is the biggest life lesson that you would give yourself back then that you'd wish you'd learned? What a great question. Oh, man. Um, oh, it's going to be okay, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. The burgers? The burgers are better. <laughs> I, would, no, I would say it's going to be okay. Because, look, uh, it's, like, it's really stress driving. And I had a dad, like I wanted to like in the end, like, because there were always these male figures driving with me when I've got my L's. And I'm like, I, I think I was just shutting down. I don't learn well when I feel threatened. And, I think no one um, does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, my, I think my dad said, I said, dad, can I just learn automatic? And he's like, no, like, I don't want to rat on my dad. He had a hard upbringing himself, but uh, it's just like, no, only girls drive automatics. You're not going to be a girl. And so it's just like, oh, he thinks I'm gay. I'm not, but I am, fuck. Um, and, uh, and then having a driving instructor, he was just so mean. And he sensed this kind of like lower, you know, uh-huh. Vibrations. Kicked, kicked puppy energy and he just capitalized on that and Great. saying oh, I've got it anyway I won't even repeat what he said but it was just so demoralizing and so yeah every time there was a hill start I'm shaking I'm just like Ugh! it's like speaking so closely to my worth but I'm man 16 year old Nath dude it's all good mate you're doing the best you can and yeah, you're going to get in a couple of years' time this amazing brown Ford gear and the head is going to blow and there's going to be coolant everywhere, but you're going to love it. And yeah, sky's the limit, brother. Keep driving and don't stall. (laughs) (laughs) And then guess what? You turned out all right. Oh, man. Found my way, as did you guys, right? Uh, we, a, haven't, we haven't we quite haven't. made it to the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and TEDx. Oh, really? <laughs> See, we're like throwing in a little bit of bio to end the show. I love it. Maybe just a little bit. <laughs> Guys, if you haven't checked out Nathan's uh, TEDx, please do. And some of the beautiful insights out of his research. We'll try and put all the links in the episode where we can. Amazing. It's been a pleasure, Nathan. Guys, what a joy Thank to you. chat. Thanks Thank for having you. me on. That was really fun, <laughs> funny, but really deep. Oof. I felt I almost wanted to cry sometimes, and then I would just burst in laughter. <laughs> I think just the emotional, I don't want to say roller coaster, but emotional experience. experience. Hey, roller coasters are fun, right? Right? They are fun. Amazing. Thanks, That Nathan. was great. Thanks, Thank guys. You.